Good Sunday morning to everybody. I'm so thankful that you have joined us uh, today. And, uh, you know, we're going to continue our series entitled Hope in a Hopeless World, a study through the book of Revelation, not only uh, from a prophetical standpoint, uh, but also a historical standpoint. We want to understand what did the church who received this book, what did they read? How did they understand it and interpret it? And how are you and I to apply it? And so I, I hope you're enjoying this time together. This morning, we're going to look at Revelation 4 and 5, if you want to go ahead and make your way there. Uh, and we're going to talk about something that is very, very relevant right now. I want you to imagine for a moment a gathering of people who agree on most things, uh, but on this one area, they disagree. And they don't just disagree. Like They are sharply divided over this issue. Instead of meaningful dialogue, each side lobs allegations and accusations at the other side. Now, you probably think I'm talking about America right now, but I'm actually not. I'm talking about the church. For more than 20 years, churches have been fighting what's come to be known as worship wars. It's all about which style of music should be used in worship. You know, is it the hymns or is it contemporary? Internet articles, books have been written on both sides of the argument saying why their preferred method is right, why the other side is wrong. But what if, let's just imagine for a moment, what if both sides were actually wrong? Now, I want to start off by telling you how both sides are wrong on at least two aspects here. The first aspect is the role of music. Many people want their preferred style of music because according to them, it gets me ready to hear from God. Now, while not openly saying it, they elevate music to near the same importance as biblical teaching in a worship service. And that's wrong. If we do a, a study of history and Jewish times, especially in Jesus' day, we're going to see a very different order of service. In Western Christianity, we do music and then the message. But what they would do is they would have 45 minutes of reading and praying in God's Word. It was followed by about a five-minute message or so, really application of the text. And then they would sing songs. You see, they sang in response to what they had learned about God. They didn't sing to get themselves ready to hear from God. They sang because they had heard from God and they were responding to that. And so what happened was the word of God molded their heart so that they could worship through music. Now, the second way that I'd say both sides are wrong is this. They're approaching worship from a man-centered perspective. They want a worship experience that is tailored to their preferences, not an encounter with the living God. Church, what I want us to understand this morning is that worship is primarily about God. It is our response to the revelation of himself to us. 
The one big thing is this, that our worship and our life should be centered on who Jesus is and what he has done for us. So I want us to look at two texts together. The first one is going to be Revelation chapter 4, verses 8 through 11, and then we're going to go to Revelation 5, verses 8 to 14. So let's go ahead and read it together. Starting in chapter 4, verse 8, it says, And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne, and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Now flipping over to chapter 5, starting in verse 8 again, it says, And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beast and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, Heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this opportunity to come into worship and Lord, just to open your word and to see what our life should be like and how our worship should be. Father, I pray that we would have a fresh uh, word from you that comes from the old, old story of the gospel. And Lord, that it would speak life to those who are dead, and it would encourage and strengthen those who feel weak. But Father, in order to do that, we need to hear from your spirit, from your word. And so Lord, would you give us ears to hear and hearts to receive the truth of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, our one big thing is that our worship and our life should be centered on who Jesus is and what he's done for us. So as we begin to look at it, the church's worship be, should be centered on, you see it, who Jesus is. I want us to see how the worship in heaven is bookended. All right, Look there in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 8. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, this is a, a quote from Isaiah 6. And in that, we see three attributes of God. First, He is holy. Now, that's He is 
morally pure. He's perfect. There is no sin in him. Not only is there no sin in God, he is also the keeper of his promises. Look there in Revelation 4.3. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Now, maybe you're wondering, what, what, why does a rainbow appear here? It's a reminder of God's promise to never destroy the earth by flood again. I want to think about all the flooding that has occurred here recently. I mean, it's been twice here in the last month that we've had to deal with quite a bit of rain uh, that, that led to some, some flooding. Uh, of course, the worst flood in, in my lifetime was 1985. Yet as bad as that flood was, God kept his promise. Whatever God has promised, God will do. And so, church, we ought to learn to praise him because he is holy and he is faithful. The second attribute of God that we see in Revelation 4 and Isaiah 6 is that he is all-powerful. That's what uh, is meant by the term almighty. All power and might are in God and they come from God. That's why Jesus said in John 15 verse 5, For without me you can do nothing. Because God is all-powerful, it also means that he is sovereign. Now, that means that he is in control. An amazing thing has happened here in the book of Revelation. The scene has shifted. Chapters 1 through 3 are events on the earth. Chapter 4 and 5 is now uh, shifting to what's taking place in heaven at a future time. Now, why is it important that John records that the throne was high above or was set in heaven? It's important because it means that everything happening down on earth is beneath God's feet. So God is high above it all, which indicates ownership and authority over it all. I love a saying I saw a while back. It says, don't worry about the things that are over your head because they're still under God's feet. Which means don't worry about things in life because God is ruling and reigning over them all. And we can praise God because he is in control. And even though we don't know how it's all going to work out, we can trust him and know that he does. So I don't have to get stressed out and strung out by trying to figure it all and fix it. When I can't see the hands of God, I can still praise and trust the person of God. And finally, the third attribute is that he is eternal. You see there uh, the phrase was and is and is to come. And this is just a reminder that there has never been nor will there ever be a time in which God doesn't exist. If you flip into chapter 5, verse 13, notice it says, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Because of who God is, he and he alone is worthy of blessing and honor and glory. Now this is the bookend of worship in heaven. It is focusing on who he is. But the middle section of chapter 4 and chapter 5 is praising God for what he has done. 
Chapter 4, verse 11 says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Now, notice the same uh, three responses. Glory, honor, and power. This time it's because of what he has done. Specifically, Revelation chapter 4 is praising God for his work in creation. In Colossians 1.16, it says that all things were created by God and for God. It's by God's power that the universe is here and it's held together. It is at God's direction that the sun shines, the rain falls, and the snow cascades down. As God told Job, it's by his power and his decree that the oceans only go so far. This is why David wrote in Psalm 19, verse 1, that the heavens declare the glory of God. You know what I find amazing about creation is not only does it teach us about who God is, but it also gives us a, a picture of salvation. When God created everything in Genesis 1, how was it described? It was as void, having nothing. And really, this pictures the person who was far from God. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we were dead in our sins. However, at God's initiation and work, he brought something from nothing by sending his son to die in our place. It's God's spirit that convicts the sinner and draws us to him and saves us. He brings life from death, something where there was nothing. And by his power and grace, just as he sustains his creation, God sustains his children and keeps us in his peace and by his power. Now, let's flip into chapter 5. Look at verse 9. They sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Revelation 5.12 Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. He is worthy of our love, our devotion, and our praise because of what he has done. Chapter 4 was about praising God for his work in creation. Chapter 5 is praising God for his work in redemption. And I want us to see the scope of his death. By his blood, Jesus will redeem people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. We see this great multitude in Revelation 7. See, Jesus didn't just die for some, he died for all. But it is important for us to know that the blood is only applied to those who surrender their heart and their life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so while his death was sufficient to save you, it is only applied as you surrender and trust in the gospel and the gospel alone. So what does this mean for our worship here and now. Well, I would say that there are two ways that we can worship Jesus here and now and that we should. The first one is that we must bow to the King. One thing that you don't see in this grand worship session 
is somebody standing other than Jesus. In Revelation 4.10 and again in 5.8, we see when worship is happening, the people are bowing themselves before Jesus. But what does it mean to bow to the king? It means first and foremost to surrender your heart to him. It means to submit your life to him. See, there's only one way to be a part of this grand worship service, and that is to have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, to have it wash you clean from your sins. If you're here this morning or you're listening to this podcast and you have never bowed to King Jesus and surrendered to the gospel, this is what his call on your life is today. To to turn from your sin of trusting yourself to be good enough or to do enough good. And instead trust that what Jesus did is all that was necessary for us to be saved. Seeing who he is and what he has done for you. The only appropriate response is to bow your heart and your life to him. To be saved today. But then to continue to surrender to him and submit to him every day as Lord of our life. Which leads us to the second application and it's To live your life as an act of worship. One thing that we need to learn in the church is this. That worship is more than what we do on Sunday mornings. Worship is a lifestyle. To worship means to declare God is worthy of our love, our devotion, and our obedience. And the greatest way that you and I can show our love for Jesus, to to show that we truly worship Him as Lord, is to obey Him. There's this false teaching in Christianity that says that you can have Jesus as your Savior, but Jesus being Lord is optional. See, for me to declare that Jesus is my Savior is to also declare that He is my Lord. He is my commanding officer. It's interesting, Jesus was teaching one day and there were people who were professing their love for God. And Jesus asked them a really pointed question in Luke 6.46. He says, why do you call me Lord but not do the things that I command? I believe we need to wrap our minds around and gain an understanding of the role works play in the Christian's life. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by grace. But our works are the evidence that we have been saved. And so for me to declare that I'm a Christian... But to not obey Jesus is a contradiction. It's an impossibility, I would argue. Jesus himself says in John 14 and verse 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. Anyone can say that they love God, but proof of that is seen 
and striving for wholehearted obedience. No, you're not going to be perfect this side of, of heaven. But we ought to be striving in holiness. We ought to be able to say, I'm not what I used to be, but pray, uh, I'm not what I should be, but praise God, I'm not what I used to be. People should see the change that is happening in our lives. They should see uh, the growth. They should see the fruit. You know, Jesus said in John 15 that as we abide in him, we will bear fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. So the more I mature, the more God produces fruit in me and through me. And that should be evident to the world around me. If the world has to question if I'm a Christian, then I got a problem. So let me ask you, are you pursuing holiness? Or are you just meandering in half-hearted obedience? Or worse, have you bought into the lie that all I have to do is say a prayer and then I'm good to go for the rest of my life? Because I'm going to tell you, The New Testament paints a very, very different picture. The prayer is our profession of needing the gospel as the only way to save us. But there should be evidence that we have been saved, and that is the life that we live. Is Jesus calling you to confess something today? Is he calling you to repent of some sin today? Let your next act of worship be obedience to him. Whatever he is saying to you right now, whether it's to come to him in faith and to be saved, or whether it's that you need to be serious about him being Lord of your life and you living in obedience to what he said and how uh, he has taught us to live. Let's worship Jesus by responding to him, who he is and what he has done. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time and this opportunity to study your word. And God, I, I pray for your help. I pray for each person here today that they have trusted you and are truly safe. But God, if they're not, if, if they are still far from you, Lord, would you bring them near to you today? Would you save them by your grace? And Lord, I I pray for my brothers and sisters. Lord, so often we get lulled into this false belief that as long as I said a prayer, I can live however I want. But that's not what Scripture teaches. We should be striving to surrender to you, to be Uh, filled with your spirit more and more each day as we give more and more control of our life to you. That it would be evident to those around us that not only are we being, that we have been saved, but that God, you are changing us. So Lord, as you have spoken, I just pray that you would help us to respond. Whatever you're saying right now, Lord, let our answer be yes. In Jesus' name, amen. 
want to say thank you for, for joining us. I want to encourage you. Take the next step. If that next step is surrendering your heart to Jesus and being saved, then reach out. Let us help you. Understand what that means and to begin that walk with God. If there's a sin that you are struggling with, take the next step in confessing and turning from it, but then reach out for help. Whatever that next step, whatever God is saying to you right now, let's respond to Him.